Sponsor StrongDM is secure infrastructure access for the modern stack. StrongDM proxies connections between your infrastructure and sysadmins, giving your IT team auditable, policy-driven, IAC-configurable access to whatever they need, wherever they are. Find out more at strongdm.com slash packetpushers. This episode of Day 2 Cloud is brought to you in part by IT Pro TV. Start or grow your IT career with online IT training from IT Pro TV. And we have a special offer for all you amazing Day 2 Cloud listeners. Sign up and save 30% off all plans. ITPro.tv slash Day 2 Cloud and use promo code CLOUD at checkout to save 30% off all plans. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today, we're talking about multi-cloud fluency. What, what, what does that mean? It means having knowledge of more than one cloud. And our guest today is the one and only Forrest Brazil. And he has some rather contentious things to say during the course of the episode. Uh, Ethan, what stuck out to you? <laughs> Come on. You mean you set me up for that, man? Learn to code. Learn to code. Yeah, Forrest takes a very hard line on the whole you need to learn to code thing. And we have a pretty good discussion about it. And, and we we have Forrest justify why he is so insistent that folks that are going to become multi-cloud multi-cloud fluent learn to code or even just cloud engineers at all so if you're mm. curious about that justification enjoy this episode with Forrest Brazil head of content at Google Cloud Forrest welcome to day two cloud and before we jump into the topic at hand can you tell the good folks out there a little bit about yourself who are you and what you do Sure thing. It's great to be here. My name is Forrest Brazil. I've been building and educating folks on the cloud for a long time uh, as an engineer, a manager of engineers, a consultant at companies ranging from startups all the way up to the Fortune 50. Uh, the company I work for now is Google Cloud. I'm the head of content there, and that's a title that kind of is what you make of it. Uh, but I'm fortunate to lead a really talented team, and we kind of work to help tell the story of Google Cloud to the world. Okay. And when you say content, is that just any media that you can get your hands on? You're, you're, you're you know, singing songs, doing videos, all of the jazz? I am definitely infamous for singing tech songs. You can find those scattered around on the internet. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's all forms of media uh, discovered and yet to be discovered. All right. Awesome. Well, I definitely recommend checking out those songs. If, if, if listeners have not checked them out, they're awesome. Uh, but that's, we're not here to talk about singing today. We're here to uh -huh. talk about uh, multi-cloud skills. And uh, let's start with the most basic of basics. When, when you're talking about multi-cloud, and this is based off of a really awesome blog post that you put up recently, uh, what are you talking about when you're talking about multi-cloud? Is this exclusively the, the big three-ish? Yeah, so my, my background is with the major public cloud providers. I was an AWS hero for a long time before kind of making the switch over to the other cloud and working for Google. Uh, and so I, that's where my head was at when I wrote this post. Um, but I do make it clear as I'm talking about this concept of multi-cloud skills that uh, it's not just about the big providers and it's not even just about the, the smaller providers like, you know, Lino, DigitalOcean, those, but it's really uh, any kind of a SaaS product or third-party product you could integrate as well. And I'll give you an example. Uh, AWS had an outage recently. Google Cloud has had their outages too. I'm not here to say one cloud provider has <laughs> more outages or fewer than the other, but 
but uh, they, they had an outage where uh, their DNS was out. And uh, some people were saying, well, I can't fail over to another region like I had planned because I actually don't have the ability to edit my DNS configurations. And so if I had been just running DNS like on Cloudflare, but everything else was in AWS, that would have removed that particular failure mode from my design. I would consider that to be a multi-cloud architecture, even though it's literally just public cloud plus an external DNS provider. I think that's a completely reasonable thing to talk about. Is multi-cloud also in your definition then if I'm hosting cloud-like services privately? Uh, no, I probably would not use that definition. I'd use a different term like um, hybrid cloud. It's okay. funny, I actually heard someone use the term multi-prem recently, which kind of scared <laughs> me to death. <laughs> well, I, okay, I'm glad you qualified that because multi-cloud seems like it's taking over what hybrid cloud and multi-cloud used to mean as an all-in-one convenient term. So for purposes of our conversation, then multi-cloud means things you're not doing on-premises. Yeah, it's at more than one of the three major public cloud providers is kind of the way I would set the bar for this discussion. Not saying there's anything wrong with having things, you know, on-premises combined with in the cloud. That's just a little bit different discussion. Now, in terms of folks getting into multi-cloud, do you think that multi-cloud is basically inevitable for all organizations or can you really avoid it by focusing on a single cloud for all of your needs? It really depends on your organization and particularly on the size of your organization, but past some uh, probably distressingly small size, uh, your organization is likely going to run into multiple cloud providers at some point. Lydia Leong, who's a Gartner analyst, has a fantastic piece about this called the Multi-Cloud Gelatinous Cube that I recommend everybody on this uh, listening to this podcast go ahead and read, where she talks about the reasons uh, that most organizations end up with multiple clouds. And it's not always a strategic thing, like someone saying, well, I just really feel like we need to have a posture where, you know, we have applications spread across two clouds for resiliency or to hedge our bets against lock-in or something like that. I'm not saying that would be a good strategy, even if you did have it, but a lot of people don't have that strategy. It's more like multi-cloud is just something that happens to them, either because of acquisitions. I bought a company, I bought a little startup that was using Azure, and uh, I don't want to rebuild their whole stack, so we're just going to kind of make them live in our AWS world. It could be a situation where uh, you just kind of... Uh, let multi-cloud happen to you because you have a best of breed service over here that you really want to use, but you have this other team that says, well, I, I actually need to use some data services on cloud B. Uh, so a, a lot of times we find that multi-cloud is just there at the end of the day, and it's not something that you plan for, but you're going to have to find a way to deal with it because just the fact that it wasn't part of the initial strategy doesn't mean that you're you know, not still going to have to secure it and make sure you have people that are on staff that know how to handle it. What does that mean for individual contributors then for us? Should an engineer special, I mean, is it still possible if all I want to do is specialize in one cloud that I can do that? Um, or, or do I really, as a as an IC, need to be thinking about, I got to get good at more than one cloud at this point? I think it's an, a kind of an overwhelming question to confront if you are someone who does not have cloud skills today. Because it's easy to say, well, you need to know multiple clouds, but if I know zero clouds, that's not really a helpful piece of advice. Uh, so I would recommend if you're just starting your cloud journey, pick a cloud, pick a cloud, any cloud, and, and get good at it. Get hands-on with it, get deep into it, build some projects, show some expertise. That's what's going to get you hired rather than this mile high or mile wide inch deep. Uh, approach where you know some basic facts, but you haven't really built anything of substance anywhere. However, if you've been in this game for a while, 
it's quite likely that you're going to end up encountering multiple cloud providers in your environment, unless you're doing something like working for a consultancy or being an independent consultant where you get to choose the specific type of projects you work on. And you can say, I'm going to pin myself to Google Cloud and I don't ever want to see or touch a different cloud provider. You can get away with that to some extent if you're uh, an agency, but it's it's harder to do if you're in-house somewhere where it's a complex environment and services are moving and changing over time. I mean, think about it, you know, it, what technology in history have you been able to pin yourself to and say, I'm going to learn just this, only this, my skills are never going to change, and I'm going to be set till retirement. That's not the way IT works, right? No. So eventually you're going to have to branch out. It, it isn't. It isn't. But and, and to speak to your point, if you pick a cloud, any cloud, and just learn that one, and then you need to uh, acquire skills in a different cloud, well, some of those skills are, are, are portable, at least insofar as a lot of the concepts are very similar cloud to cloud. They are similar cloud to cloud. And this is where I want to get into a really key nuance here, because it might be the case that you're in-house somewhere, you're working in a shop, let's say it's it's totally an AWS shop, or it's totally a Google Cloud shop, and there's no indication on the horizon that other cloud services are going to come in. There's lots of places that are like that. They're all in on one cloud provider. Maybe they've even got some deal with the cloud provider where they're financially incentivized to be all in. It's unlikely that they're going to expand much beyond that. It can still be to your advantage to know the basics of a second cloud provider. Because especially if you're moving more up into like an architect world, when it's time for you to make decisions, when it's time for you to pattern match and figure out what combination of services you're going to use to solve a problem, it really does behoove you to understand what else is out there in the landscape. You just mentioned that a lot of these providers have some basic concepts that are similar around how they do virtual networking, how they do IAM, um, but they're also gonna have subtle differences to how they, uh, how they build things. So so for example, I might be you know, building on Google Cloud and I might be thinking about this data warehousing solution I want to build on top of BigQuery. It might be really helpful for me to know like how Snowflake does it, which actually, you know, not one of the three big cloud providers, but it's really, really big in the data space. It might be helpful for me to know how Snowflake works so that I can make better choices, more informed choices around what I'm doing. Same if I'm in consulting, by the way, and focusing on one cloud provider. If I only provide AWS consulting, I still want my clients to know that I've thought about what Azure solution is to this problem and why I'm recommending they choose the AWS approach. It just helps my credibility. Right, right. You could get asked a question about one of the other clouds you're not, you know, focused on and you don't want to sit there like a deer in headlights in the consulting meeting and be like, oh, I, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, you'd at least be, like to be able to say, I, I think I have a, a little bit of an idea and then you can go back and do some research if you need to. But being able to give some portion of an answer in consulting is usually uh, the clients like that. Yeah. I mean, nobody's saying you have to pretend to be an expert in something you're not an expert in, but situational awareness is just part of being a professional in this space. You're not doing anyone any favors by sticking your head in the sand and saying, well, I know Lambda and step functions, so now I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> now, you recently joined Google Cloud as head of content, but before that, you mentioned you were an AWS hero and you were working for a cloud guru, which is the, like the first time we met, I think. Yeah. Um, did the process of moving over to Google Cloud transform the way you're thinking about learning cloud skills? Uh, I think it's been an ongoing evolution for me. I mean, even at a cloud guru, of course, that was a quote unquote multi-cloud shop because we were teaching and building about AWS and Azure and Google Cloud and all sorts of other things all at the same time. Prior to that, I had really been very AWS focused in my career. I had woken at, worked at multiple shops that were all in on AWS. Uh, and it, it's been kind of a gradual process for me to expand my uh, awareness beyond 
just that cloud provider. Um, but yeah, my my learning does continue to evolve, to transform. Um, and I think the things that I've learned and had exposure to since I've been at Google have helped me to understand that I'm a better technologist uh, when I, I understand both clouds. And not only that, I believe it's the case that the industry as a whole is a lot better when there's healthy competition among the cloud providers. Uh, you know, if uh, AWS for some reason feels pressure to improve like their billing and identity and their free tier things that are all differentiators for Google Cloud today, you know, that's everybody wins. Customers win. I think the cloud providers get better. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to do what I can to be a, a good citizen of the cloud community as a whole and try to advocate for best practices wherever I see them. If, uh, if AWS could do anything about their IAM uh, permissions uh, set up and the way that they approach it, that would be fantastic. And I think maybe some of the pressure coming from Azure and Google and the way that they've simplified that, uh, it could could you could see that change coming in, and maybe not too distant future. That'd be that'd be nice. I'd appreciate that. <laughs> now, obviously, you didn't start out knowing everything about the cloud. You, you still had, don't, to be clear, still don't. <laughs> <laughs> so you had to pick up skills and learn things along the way. Can you tell me a little bit about that learning journey, kind of where it started and how it's evolved? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. My cloud journey, I think like a lot of people's, evolved out of a more traditional IT profile. Um, I started my career on a help desk, like a lot of people do. Uh, and there was a time in my career where I was an IT field engineer and I was standing beside people's computers, you know, installing antivirus. Uh, I, I remember being in a surgery center one time and updating software on a machine during a live cataract surgery, which was a horrifying thing to have done, uh, you know, <laughs> all, all scrubbed <laughs> up, right? And, and uh, you know, just trying not to look at whatever shenanigans are going on there during the surgery. But at some point, I became a database administrator and uh, was working at a large company called Infor that uh, was actually, they'd just gone all in on AWS. Their CEO was the guy who got up on stage at reInvent and said, friends don't let friends build data centers. And right after that, they started moving uh, these massive ERP applications out of their private on-premises data centers and moving them to AWS. This was uh, like early 2014. I mean, I was part of the team that moved some of those first applications. So taking more traditional like SQL Server DBA skills, becoming a DevOps DBA, and then all of a sudden becoming a cloud database administrator. I went on from there building internal uh, cloud tools and then moving into the world of, of consulting and building applications for a variety of different companies. Um, and so it was just a very ladder-like process for me, step-by-step. Step. And it's it's hard to go back now and look at that and say, you know, well, if someone had just told me everything I needed to know about the cloud seven or eight years ago that I could have just dived right in and been a really uh, effective cloud engineer. I think to some extent you have to come to the surface and it, you almost have to recapitulate the uh, the history of, of IT in yourself before you can really be an effective uh, cloud engineer. Uh, sort of like the old um, evolutionary diagrams that used to show, you know, the, the embryo becoming a fish and becoming a cow and all these things. I don't know if that's actually uh, scientifically accurate anymore or not. But that's sometimes how I think about my career is this evolution toward, uh, you know, the, the modern cloud. I think it's helpful if you can go through that. There are absolutely shortcuts. There are levers you can pull. Um, certifications, one of them. I have several cloud certifications. Several of them are expired now. I probably shouldn't admit that. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, and having worked today, Cloud Guru and helped many folks get certified there. I'm a fan of that as an approach. But uh, you do, you have to get hands on. You have to build and understand why you're building and what the history of it is. Yeah, that context is very important. And as I came up through my tech career, I also started in more traditional roles in the data center, working help desk to start out with. And that tossed me some soft skills that really apply to the cloud today. Um, so I think there's definitely a lot of value in having that 
context and background to technology. But if I'm a junior engineer, you know, just just coming in, uh, does it make sense for me to try to gather all that context up, or should I instead be focusing on the future and just you know learning about cloud and and all the services that it, it includes? Yeah, I mean, what even is a junior engineer? Like that's such an <laughs> ill-defined role, and it's it's never been harder to get hired as a, a junior cloud engineer or a cloud associate. You know, the in the the companies that are forward-thinking enough and well-built enough to be able to support roles like that, usually they're putting a lot of uh, support and expertise around those juniors to help them get up to speed. It's not just throwing them into the deep end and saying, "Okay, you're here now. We assume you know the cloud." Um, and it's gotten even harder in these pandemic times as more and more people are working remote and relatively few companies feel comfortable, I think, onboarding juniors uh, without being able to sit right next to them and, and pair program and all that. So to your question, uh, how should a junior engineer approach learning cloud? Um, it, it may be the case you know, that you're going to need to work your way into that cloud role through uh, a, a series of more maybe support-oriented roles or other things. Maybe the case that you want to try to uh, polish up your coding skills and actually do some software engineering. It's a lot easier to move into a cloud role from a software engineering background than it is from an IT background in terms of what people are willing to hire you for. Uh, and sometimes you know, there's companies that have a little bit better and more established, understood path for onboarding, let's say, a front-end engineer than they do a a backend or a cloud engineer. I, I wanted to I want to dig into that a little bit because I came from an infrastructure background. So did Ethan. Sounds like you did as well to a certain yep. degree. Why, why do you feel that it's more difficult to make that transition if you come from a traditional infrastructure background? There's one word and the word is code. Code is the barrier. Code is the bridge. That's what separates traditional IT from cloud engineering. Uh, it's something that's you know inherent to you if you are in the software development world. It's not inherent to you if you are a point and click DBA or you're someone who's been you know racking and stacking servers. Um, that is what is probably preventing you from being an effective cloud engineer if you're trying to make that gap and you don't know how to code. Do you mean mostly infrastructure as code and pipelines? That 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 the tooling around it or actual code? I mean, actual code. I, I mean, uh, a, a cloud engineer is likely going to need to be proficient in at least one modern programming language. I always recommend Python uh, because it, you know, it does show up in everything from internal tooling to backend services uh, uh, to you know data engineering. So uh, yeah, but of course, infrastructure as code and being able to write configuration around that is is a key part as well. Wow. So to me, that's almost a gauntlet being thrown because a lot of the infrastructure folks I know have been very resistant to learning a true general purpose programming language. They're happy to learn scripting. They're happy to do things in Bash or PowerShell or even adopt something like Terraform that's approaching a general purpose language. But they're still hesitant to go all in on on something like Python or Go or, you know, whatever. What would you say to those folks who are hesitant about getting on that bus? Well, first, I would want to meet them where they are. I mean, even like being proficient with PowerShell is actually a really great first step. And there's a lot of people that aren't there or don't feel comfortable with that. So, I mean, if you can, you know, rough out some procedural logic in, in PowerShell or Bash, like you're you're way more than halfway to being able to competently pick up a Python or, or a Go. Uh, so I would I would first want to see somebody get there. But if there's someone who, for some reason, is hanging out in this world of maybe writing batch scripts, batch, not bash, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, it maybe is comfortable slinging a little bit of JSON or YAML or filling out a config file, but just doesn't feel like you know they're anything close to a, a software engineer, they're anything close to architecting a software application and, and being able to fit those parts together. I would understand that. I, I'm not saying that you necessarily have to have the the skills that you would have 
as a true software engineer, but you need to be able to show that you can take a general purpose programming language and manipulate data with it uh, and to per, you know perform basic uh, procedural operations, uh, imperative coding. It's, it's going to be really, really important that you can do that even just to get hired into these roles. You're gonna land in technical interviews where you're asked to do that, even if it doesn't end up forming a tremendously huge part of your time on the job. So yeah, I, I guess I am throwing down a gauntlet a little bit. Uh, if, if someone comes to me and says, hey, I'm, I'm struggling, I, I can't seem to make the transition to cloud, that's gonna be my first question. Okay, how are your coding skills? And if they're not there, okay, let's work on them to get them up to speed. But you know, you're, you're probably gonna run into frustration and pain and an unnecessarily long road if you are uh, holding yourself back from cracking open the lid on coding skills. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, Ned, I echo what you said about the gauntlet being thrown. That's interesting. And Forrest, you're taking a position that's not... Uh, it's common enough, but I don't think it's popular. It's certainly not popular amongst the infrastructure crowd. Folks are more open to to it, but to embrace it fully, as you're suggesting, I think there is resistance to to that. Let, let me put it this way. Um, again, I come out of traditional infrastructure. I Years ago, when I talked about making those first migrations to the cloud inside of a large traditional IT organization, I would say there were two categories of coworkers that I had. There were people who embraced the shift to code, to source control, to uh, you know automating their work. And there were people who resisted that and who embraced uh, the old ways and you know not wanting to change uh, their... Uh, comfortable GUI-driven approaches to, to programming. Uh, or perhaps they they clutched onto, you know, these kind of bespoke one-off scripts they had created and they couldn't get involved with modern ways of uh, doing CICD and, and sharing code and all that kind of thing. The people who embraced uh, code uh, grew in their careers, found better jobs, they've moved on, they're cloud professionals today. The people who uh, resisted that are either stuck in limbo or they are having trouble finding positions today. The stream of IT moves on. IT and software development are converging in terms of the value they provide in the cloud where everything is automated. Uh, and if you're not moving along with that, you are gonna get left behind. We pause the podcast for a couple of minutes to introduce sponsor StrongDM's Secure Infrastructure Access Platform. And if those words are meaningless, StrongDM goes like this. You know how managing servers, network gear, cloud VPCs, databases, and so on, it's this horrifying mix of credentials that you saved in PuTTY and in super secure spreadsheets and SSH keys on thumb drives and that one doc in SharePoint you can never remember where it is? It sucks, right? StrongDM makes all that nasty mess go away. Install the client on your workstation and authenticate. Policy syncs, and you get a list of infrastructure that you can hit. When you fire up a session, the client tunnels to the strong DM gateway, and the gateway is the middleman. You know, it, it's a proxy architecture. So the client hits the gateway, and the gateway hits the stuff you're trying to manage, but it's not just a simple proxy. It is a secure gateway. The StrongDM admin configures the gateway to control what resources users can access. The gateway also observes the connections and logs who is doing what, database queries and kubectl commands, etc. And that should make all the security folks happy. Life with StrongDM means you can reduce the volume of credentials you are tracking. If you're the human managing everyone's infrastructure access, you get better control over the infrastructure management plane. You can simplify firewall policy. You can centrally revoke someone's access to everything they had access to with just a click. 
Strong DM invites you to 100% doubt this ad and go sign up for a no BS demo. Do that at strongdm.com slash packet pushers. They suggested we say no BS. And if you review their website, that is kind of their whole attitude. They solve a problem you have and they want you to demo their solution and prove to yourself it will work strongdm.com slash packet pushers and join other companies like Peloton, SoFi, Yext, and Chime. strongdm.com slash packet pushers. And now back to the podcast. First, let me, let me ask you a, a different way around career and career roles and the way they've been, the way they've evolved. Infrastructure for a long time has been broken up uh, often along technology lines. The network person, the backup person, the storage person, the database person, et cetera. Do we still have that line of thinking or are the skills more, I'm a cloud engineer now, which is kind of the context of this conversation. Like I'm a cloud engineer, but is, is that actually a thing? Uh, it is. And and this is where I want to bring in some more encouragement into the conversation, because I realized that I, I sounded a little bit, um, you know, unforgiving in, in what we were just saying about code. But the reality is, if you've been in IT for a while, you do bring really, really important foundational skills to the table. You may be a networking specialist, you might be a security specialist, you might be a DBA, you might have, you know, traditional sysadmin skills. These are all things that were kind of siloed a little bit in the traditional IT world, just like software development was siloed. And the whole DevOps movement was about let's bring together these practices to unify them. Um, but in the cloud, you know, while you may be a quote unquote cloud engineer, uh, there's likely going to be a focus to what you do that those traditional skills can really inform and make you better at. And you can position yourself this way, by the way, in interviews, if you're trying to make that transition to the cloud. So just like there are network engineers, there are cloud networking engineers. But what's the difference between the two? A cloud networking engineer is someone who's really comfortable with automation and code because you're mm. probably not touching routers and switches directly anymore, right? It's all software-defined networking. You've got to be comfortable with that. Uh, in the InfoSec world, if you're going to be a cloud security engineer, you'd better be really comfortable with IAM. Uh, and with uh, access control uh, in the sense of, um, uh, you know, like SSO and, and everything that's involved there, uh, you, you better be really, really comfortable with security being something that's automated and that is rolled out uh, at scale to large numbers of ephemeral machines rather than something that you're hand tuning via group policy or something like that. Oh, taking me back with group policy. Uh, right. I'm happy to have not touched group policy in, in a solid four or five years at this point. <laughs> Do not miss it. Well, say you've convinced our listeners that they do need to start skilling up and getting proficiency on a single cloud. Are there some, do you think they should focus on some core technologies in a single cloud uh, or should they get into the more specialized portions? Like where's a good jumping off point for that first cloud that they're going to get into? That's a good question. Uh, I think it depends on what your existing skill level is. Uh, and it depends on the exposure that you have to it in your current role. Because if you're in a job right now where you have some ability to get started with cloud in the context of your daily work, I would say take it immediately, even if it's not like the most classic uh, cloud service you could possibly be working on. Like, let's say you're in an environment where uh, they've all of a sudden decided that they're going to move their mail server and host it on Google Cloud. Uh, they're just like going to like run a classic SMTP server there. I don't know exactly why someone would choose to do that. I just made that up, um, you know, but but that's the thing you have access to work on. So go ahead and work on that, uh, you know, and uh, you can fill in the blank in terms of what's available to you in your environment. But if you're truly starting this from scratch, you're starting in a vacuum and you say, I can construct my cloud experience from nothing. Here's what I'd recommend that you do. A, make sure that you're working on a foundational certification. 
Uh, so in the Google Cloud world, this could be something like the Google Cloud Associate uh, Cloud Engineer Cert. That's going to give you the broad spectrum of exposure to a wide variety of cloud systems and services. Uh, even if you never actually take the certification exam, just covering the components of that certification training will help you know you haven't missed big areas in your study. It will help reduce your unknown unknowns. Uh, and then you're going to want to dive in deep on core cloud services. Uh, so for me, this would be, you know, if you want to be someone who is uh, has what we call a traditional cloud engineering skill set. You want to make sure that you can work with containers, that you can deploy containers to the cloud. You want to understand the IAM, uh, the networking, and uh, potentially to some extent the um, uh, the underlying compute and storage abstractions that are used to make these things run in the cloud. Uh, I would say start there. The things that bolt onto those, like the more higher level managed services, the workflow abstractions, uh, perhaps some of the data services that kind of sit over in their own uh, part of the stack. Those are great things to drill down into and become a specialist in, but I do believe that everybody should have some basic core fundamental understanding of how do I stand up and deploy an application in the cloud with the security, networking, and infrastructure as code uh, skills that that implies. Would, would you say that's true if I have started with, with a single cloud here in the context of this part of the conversation? When I go multi-cloud and I pick up a second or a third cloud, that same core set for us is what I should be going after as well? Potentially, but I would think about it a little bit differently. For your core cloud, you really want to go deep and you want to show that you have the kind of expertise where someone will hire you to professionally <laughs> administer uh, that cloud. So that really means getting hands-on. And sometimes it's not helpful to just say get hands-on because what does that even mean? Does that mean do a hands-on lab? Does that mean build a, a project from scratch? I would really push you toward uh, build some real projects, You know, commit them to source control and be able to show value with them particularly in a job interview. Whereas your secondary cloud, you might not do that so much. It might be enough for you just to go ahead and get one of those foundational certifications. So you have the landscape awareness and you have some analogy type reasoning for how these two clouds interrelate. We know uh, adults learn by analogy. That was a big thing we emphasized today, Cloud Guru and our, our andragogy, uh, which means adult learning. Um, but uh, yeah, so the, maybe another way to put this is build on your primary cloud, get certified on your secondary cloud. I want to go back to certifications briefly here because I think you mentioned something really key that folks should should pay attention to. If you're looking to learn a cloud, look at the way they've structured their certifications and that'll give you a good idea of where to start and then what what are considered specialties in that cloud. Because I know looking at the way that Azure and AWS, and I'm assuming Google has done this as well, all of them have a foundational cert, like a cloud practitioner cert that they can take. That gives you some just basics around cloud computing and a few core constructs. And then they get into a little bit of specialization, whether you're more uh, software development focused or data focused or whatever. And then they have these totally separate specialty certifications for those other services you were talking about that you one would want to specialize in. Does that, does that line up with your thinking in terms of certifications? Yeah, that's really well put. That's exactly how I'm thinking about it. Use the certification as your roadmap to what the cloud provider thinks is important. Right, right. And like you said, you don't necessarily have to take the exam <laughs> if that's something that's really expensive or if you get real nervous during tests, but just going through the training is, is going to be immensely helpful. Right. I mean, there. To, to be clear, there are places where the actual certification credential is important. Uh, in the consulting world, it can be important, you know, because it affects their uh, relationship with the the partnership level they have with the cloud provider. There's certain things you can do. Like I know, I don't know if it's still true, but it used to be you couldn't do an AWS well-architected review unless you held the solutions architect professional cert. 
Um, so there's, there's reasons why you may want one, why they're valuable to you. But yeah, I, I, if you're, you know, if you're just going after it for the piece of paper and you're trying to skate through or cram for it and not really learn and understand the concepts, you've missed 95% of the value. <laughs> it's interesting. You should mention the AWS, uh, SA pro cert. Cause I actually had to get that for the exact reason you were talking about. Yep. Uh, I was already, you know, pretty seasoned in using AWS, but the consultancy I was working for wanted to start doing the well-architected reviews. And at the time, yeah, I don't know if this is still the case a few years ago, but at the time you couldn't officially conduct those if you didn't have that level of certification. Exactly. But like, yep. go get it. <laughs> First, another thing you've mentioned along the way as we you threw the gauntlet down about code and coding, and you've also mentioned source control. Is there, you, you, that's a generic term. Do you mean something spe as specific as Git or, you know, just broadly some kind of source control? I, I mean, at this point, I think source control means Git. If you're using like SVN or something older, it's probably time to, you know, add Git to your toolbox. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in that same vein, when you're thinking of learning about source control or even some of the other services that sort of glue the cloud together, right? Mm -hmm. Are you generally thinking in terms of specific services each cloud has? I'm thinking like Azure DevOps, or workflows on Google Cloud, or do you instead turn to third-party solutions? Should someone have a background in those as well? I formulated it this way, and it seems to be helpful to a lot of people. I say bet on cloud-native services and open source tooling. Uh, the value of the cloud providers is in their deep uh, services. So on the Google Cloud side, it, it might be something like BigQuery, which I've already mentioned. Uh, some of these really, really powerful services are like Google Cloud Spanner, which is this fascinating uh, uh, managed globally distributed, row level uh, distributed uh, you know, uh, uh, database service. Uh, that provides relational consistency across these wide geographical areas. Uh, it's it's a really, really interesting thing. It would be extremely hard to, to build yourself. A lot of the value of it comes from Google's own implementation of it uh, and the way that they have it spread out across their data centers. That's something that you couldn't get without going to Google Cloud, is how I would put it. Um, so if you're building in Google Cloud, that's actually a big draw. That's a big advantage to get. Uh, you can look up um, Pokemon Go. They've told some interesting stories about this publicly, about how they've built uh, their global, uh, extremely you know, high throughput system uh, using Google Cloud Spanner. That's a big draw for them. But at the same time, uh, you know, again, you might not spend your whole career at Google Cloud. You might not spend your whole career working for AWS or on AWS services. Um, but you probably will, no matter where you end up, you'll probably end up using Terraform uh, at some point to, to configure resources. You might end up encountering Kubernetes at a wide, wide variety of shops. Uh, so, you know, where possible, try to learn those portable tools that you can bring with you from job to job and that will help you get deep in on the services that are really the unique value adds the cloud providers have. You finally, the word Kubernetes was uttered 30 odd minutes into this conversation. I don't think it had come up before. Now, you know, one could argue you can build your own cloud on Kubernetes in your own data center, et cetera. And then of course the public cloud providers have their own uh, Kubernetes platform offerings. W what is the drive here for me as a budding cloud engineer to learn Kubernetes and add that to the mix? Well, just, I, I wouldn't actually start there. I would start with just understanding the concept of containerization. Remember how we talked about this sort of evolutionary rise uh, up the layers of the stack as you learn the technology. Um, so I would not try to dig into Kubernetes until you understand the problem that it's trying to solve, the orchestration of containers. You want to know what containerization means, how it works, maybe situated in a Linux context and, and make sure you get that. 
uh, when you are ready to think about Kubernetes, you know, like you, you won't be able to think about higher level concepts like a service mesh until you understand what Kubernetes does and maybe just as crucially what it doesn't do, what its limitations are around like networking and how services communicate inside of a Kubernetes cluster. Okay, that's why it might make sense for me to bring in like sidecars and uh, a service mesh on top of that. So you've got to work your way up to the point where you really feel comfortable with it. And the only way you'll do that is by, you know, building and then getting stuck and reading documentation and going back and building again. I'm going to interrupt the podcast for a minute here to talk about IT training. You remember the ransomware attack on the gas pipeline last year? It caught your attention probably, caught mine. There's a key thing here. Cybersecurity professionals are in demand to prevent that kind of thing. But there are not enough humans out there to fill all the positions. There's over 500,000 open cybersecurity roles. You can become a cybersecurity professional if you get some training, some online training. It is never too late to start a new career in IT or move up the ladder. IT Pro TV has you covered for your training. They cover everything. CompTIA to Cisco to EC Council to Microsoft. They, they've got all of it, including the cloudy stuff. More than 5,800 hours of on-demand training. And, and the way they present the information, you know, some presenters are like, they're reading from the book and they're super boring. That is not IT Pro TV's format at all. They use engaging hosts that they're going to present the information in a talk show format and really keep it interesting. And they do it live. They, they're live every day. And then once they recorded that live show, it goes studio to web in 24 hours. As you're digging through their website, looking for content, all the courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, job role. You can find what you're looking for without a lot of trouble. And then when you pick the thing and you're ready to go, you can stream IT Pro TV's courses, uh, either the live stuff or the on-demand stuff from anywhere in the world via whatever platform you like, Roku, Apple TV, PC, or there's apps on iOS or Android. Learn IT, pass your certs, and then get a great job, maybe in cybersecurity, with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash day2cloud for 30% off all plans. Use promo code cloud at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash day2cloud. Day2cloud is day, the number two, cloud, and then use promo code cloud at checkout. One more time, itpro.tv slash day2cloud and use promo code cloud at checkout to save 30% off all plans. And now let's get back to the podcast. Do you think Kubernetes becomes ubiquitous where that's definitely should be on my learning map? I, there's a lot of different views about this. And again, keep in mind, I work for Google Cloud, so take whatever I'm going to say with a grain of salt or not. <laughs> Fair um, point, yes. <laughs> if, if you are going to run Kubernetes, I do, my, my biased but also informed opinion is there's no better place to run it than, than GKE, Google Kubernetes Engine. Um, and the reason for that is that Kubernetes can be really hard to run. It's complicated. There's a lot of moving parts to it. Uh, and it's, it's in a lot of cases, better to uh, let a cloud provider run that for you and focus on building on top of it. Again, coming back to your mantra of, you know, leverage the cloud native services because they're, they're taking care of a lot of the moving parts behind everything. Right. And take advantage of open source tooling. So KubeCuddle or KubeCTL, I don't know where you stand on that camp, but Cube, KubeCTL, that's an open source tool. So I would, I would learn to use that really well, but the thing I'm going to be using it against is probably going to be a cloud native service. 
Yeah, exactly. And this gets right back to what we talked about, where even if you're only using one cloud provider, understanding a little bit of another cloud provider still helps you to make better decisions. Um, so if I'm running Kubernetes, it really would help me to know, uh, okay, what does like EKS have in common with GKE? How are they different? How are they the same? And if I'm going to bolt, you know, higher level things onto it, like at a service mesh like Istio, do I want to use the, the service mesh checkbox option that's on the, you know, the cloud providers uh, manage Kubernetes? Or do I want to bring in another service mesh like a, a Linkerd? What's the, the difference between those two? I've often found that what I like to do is deploy that thing on my own for, at first, understand where the, the corner, corners are on it that I'm going to bump myself against, and then let one of the services take care of it for me beyond that. But installing it myself the first time really gives me a better idea. It's kind of like Kubernetes the hard way, right? That gives you a great idea of what's going on behind the covers. But that's probably not how you actually want to run Kubernetes in production. Oh, yeah. I'm a big fan of like click ops as the first approach to something. That's why I think it's so important that <laughs> cloud provider consoles, you know, the web interfaces be really discoverable and help you surface what you want to do. Uh, a friend of mine was saying yesterday that uh, his approach to learning a new service like this, and this is great advice for someone who's trying to get into cloud, by the way, is first you build it. So you click ops it, you stand it up uh, by any means necessary, the thing you're already familiar with in cloud. Second, you automate it. So you go back and figure out how to deploy it, you know, using Terraform and put it in source control, build CICD around it, all that good stuff. So it's running like you would run it in a production context. And then go back and see if you can replicate that same thing using the cloud providers managed services. Well, I, I really like that walkthrough because I was missing that first portion where it's like, no, don't try to deploy it with Terraform and figure out what these 26 different arguments are supposed to mean. Just, just click through the console and let that you know, make yeah, it for you the first time. Awesome. All right. So... If someone is just getting started, I know you talked about certifications a little bit. What are some other really good resources out there they might leverage to learn more about a particular, uh, like a single cloud and then branch out to multiple clouds? Yeah. So uh, again, Google Cloud bias here, uh, the, the writer and everything I'm about to say. Um, I have gotten into Google Cloud Skills Boost recently, which is this uh, learning platform Google Cloud provides. It's built off of Quick Labs, which uh, they acquired a few years back. Uh, and it's got some great kind of subway map style uh, processes that will get you through, you know, the the technologies you need to get hands on with to, let's say, get one of the core Google Cloud certifications. Um, some of them are timed. They're challenge labs that you can go through and uh, achieve an objective and then go back and review what you missed. I think it's a really nice learning environment. Um, when you're ready to move beyond that, and maybe when you're ready to move out and consider a second cloud, I would recommend doing some project-based learning. This is where I'm going to put in a plug for this community thing I've been running for the past couple of years called the Cloud Resume Challenge. Uh, and this is a project that you can build. You can do it on AWS. You can do it on Azure. You can do it on Google Cloud. All the instructions are freely available. You can get them at cloudresumechallenge.dev. Um, and there's a large group of community members who are standing by ready to assist you with it. What makes the Cloud Resume Challenge, I think, interesting and unique in this space is that it's not just a tutorial where it says, okay, do this and then do this and then do this. And if you copy and paste all these things and you'll end up with a working project. The thing it asks you to do, which is to basically deploy your resume in the cloud and create a full front and back end full stack cloud application in order to do that, it doesn't really give you exact direct instructions. It gives you a series of outcomes you have to achieve. And then inside of each step, it's up to you to go through and do the Googling uh, and maybe do a little bit of learning and apply and try and fail and bang your head against it for three days and come back just like you would in a real project in a professional environment. And so what that does for you when you're able to complete it, and many hundreds of people have completed it now, is it gives you the ability in a job interview when they ask you, 
hey, tell me how DNS works. You don't have to rack your brain and think about it. You remember the three days you spent beating your head on it. And you can just answer that from the depths of your own interior emotional pain. So it is it is emotional interior pain as a service, uh, which has been <laughs> very helpful to a lot of people in beginning their cloud career because it sets you up well for what's to come. If you end up not liking it, that's a good indication. You're not going to like what cloud engineers do every day. Uh, I'm, I'm laughing along because all day today before this, I've been working on a pipeline that just keeps breaking and then I fix something and then something else breaks. And that's just the reality of cloud engineering is uh, everything's going to be red until it's green. <laughs> Last thing I want to ask about is to what degree, if I'm currently employed and working on a cloud or not, to what degree should I let my employer dictate what I'm focused on? Or should I try to take on challenges outside of that in my off hours? Ultimately, you are responsible for your career success, not the team that you're on, not your employer, not the technology stack choices that they've made. So if you feel that you're stagnating, if you feel you're not getting the opportunities you need to progress, then it is up to you to make a change. And that could involve doing some work on the side uh, to polish up skills, to be able to transition. It could involve, you know, making a calculated effort to get involved in some different things internally, if those opportunities are available to you. But I do want to encourage you with this. If you're someone who's maybe mid-career and you're looking at where you are and you say, well, I've topped out, I'm at a dead end at the job that I'm currently at. And if I'm going to meaningfully change what I do, say to get into cloud, I'm going to have to like go back to square one. I'm going to have to rewind my career, take a switch back in my career road and uh, go take a junior role. I would encourage you not to think about it that way. Please don't do that. Please don't reset back from zero because you have kind of an unfair advantage here. IT is already in your blood, right? You've you've worked with virtualization. You've worked with networking. You've worked with all these things. You've, you've got troubleshooting skills you've honed over years and years. Things are going to come in incredibly handy in the cloud. It sets you way above someone who's truly entry level in the field. So I would be looking for ways that you can uh, apply what you already know to build cloud projects that let you level up and take a step up. You might have to take a stepping stone role maybe to get to that cloud uh, engineering or architect role that you really want. I mean, there's there's roles like, you know, tactical program managers and, and TAMs uh, that are extremely technical, extremely uh, hands-on with cloud providers and their customers that could help you uh, get where you wanna be. But I'm, I'm encouraging you, try to find a way forward. Don't go back to go forward. I, I think the, the opportunities with your skill set are just too great for you to need to think about that. Oh, I love that. That's a great uh, note to end on. Uh, if you had a few key points, key takeaways for folks who've been listening today, are there some points you'd like to summarize from the conversation? Well, let's think. I think the first one, because we spent so long in it, is just learn to code. If you have not learned <laughs> to code or for some reason you've been putting it off thinking that, well, I can just kind of fake my way through the rest of my career without it. Even if you can, I mean, the opportunities are going to be so much greater if you don't do that. Just learn, learn to code. Just make it happen. You, you'll never be sorry. The, the best time is like planting a tree. The best time to do it was 10 years ago. The second best time is now. Just learn <laughs> to code. Uh, okay, second thing, talking about multi-cloud. Um, if you're going to integrate two clouds into your skill set, I think two clouds is probably the sweet spot. I don't, I don't think anybody can keep up on three clouds. And even if you could, um, it, you know, it, it's just you're going to have trouble holding it all in your head at once. So I would say one is less than two, which is greater than three uh, okay. on, on clouds, if that makes sense. Uh, and and again, go broad on your primary cloud or go deep, sorry, go deep on your primary cloud, go broad on your secondary cloud. Those would be my three takeaways. Awesome. Well, uh, Forrest, is there uh, somewhere you'd like people to go to find you on the internet, uh, Twitter or, or website? I am most active on Twitter. You can find me there, twitter.com slash Brazil. 
you can also catch up with the Cloud Resume Challenge, which I'm very active on uh, at cloudresumechallenge.dev. There's a Discord server there you can join that has thousands of people in it. Um, and then you can keep up with my latest writing uh, on the Google Cloud blog. Awesome. And that Cloud Resume Challenge, that's ongoing all the time or is that a seasonal thing? It is ongoing all the time. We do have mentorship available for people to complete it, and that takes place in cohorts. But anybody can start the Cloud Resume Challenge. You can start it today. And in fact, I hope that you will. Awesome. Well, Force Brazil, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. It was my pleasure. It was wonderful to chat with both of you. Force Brazil, head of content at Google Cloud. And hey, listener, thank you for tuning in today. Stay tuned. Up next, we have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Singtel. Welcome to the Tech Bytes portion of our episode. Today concludes a six-part series with Singtel about cloud networking. That is, how to make your existing wide area network communicate with cloud services in an effective way that maybe your legacy WAN isn't able to. We've been chatting with Mark Seabrook, Global Solutions Manager at Singtel. We're discussing the importance of getting the underlay network architecture correct. And we don't just mean the circuits, we mean the management of the underlay as well. Now, Mark, in previous episodes uh, in this series, we've, we've mentioned the underlay a few times and you kind of made this allusion to how the underlay is the foundation. And if you get the foundation wrong, nothing else matters. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I'd go even one step further than a foundation. I'd look at it like uh, a development, a, ha a housing development. So you've got to have you've got to have the road the roads marked out. You've got to have your sewer lines, your electric mains, all your telco lines. So using that as an analogy, you really need to really think about what your underlay is going to look like, not just in a country, not just regional, but if you're a global network, how it's all going to piece together. If you don't get that right from the start, and then you start building overlays with SD-WAN on top of it, if the underlay is not, not good and solid and well thought out, then you're going to have a lot of problems. Yeah, yeah. Talk about it. Like, I mean, I love that analogy of more of a development and you're putting in the electric lines and, and the sewage lines and the water lines. If you get something wrong and you've already built all these houses, changing that thing is, is not going to be pretty. <laughs> it could be pretty right. disastrous. So if I'm working with you to design my underlay network, what, what kind of questions are you going to ask me to get it right? Yeah, so basically it's going to come down to what your mission is, what, what the customer's mission is. So what, what their sites are going to look like, what kind of traffic they're going to be processing, what their cloud strategy is in that region, uh, might have a different cloud strategy for different parts of the world uh, for obvious reasons. Um, so we need really need to um, button down all of that traffic flow before we can really start looking at an underlay. Once we've got that down, we can start building the underlay in, in various regions and get that done correctly and, and, and upfront. Okay. Okay. So I want to back up there a second, because you said it, it should be obvious that you might want different cloud strategies for different regions of the world, but that, that's not necessarily obvious to everyone. Can you, can you expand on that a little bit and how that impacts the underlay design? Sure. I mean, so we, we've mentioned before that, you know, if you've got all of your sites in say, for example, the U S um, you're probably not going to have any problems because you've got multiple, multiple public internet cloud gateways to hit. 
you're not restricted anywhere. Your peering is just top notch, multiple, multiple carriers, similar to Europe. If you go to some parts of Asia, you're going to get some restrictions, obviously, with the, the Chinese firewall. That's a big one. Other parts of the world, certain traffic's restricted as well. Um, or just the uh, the reliability of the underlay is not going to be there. Um, the same as what you're going to experience in, say, the US or Europe. Now, Mark, with Singtel, We've talked a lot about SD-WAN in this series, which is kind of over the top, but you you also will sell me physical circuits, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we have our MPLS network all over the world. We have 428 POPs. Uh, we have um, point-to-point E-lines, point-to-point waves. We've got our SD-Connect product. Um, SD-Connect is our cloud product where it allows you to um, hit cloud targets or do virtual VLANs between data centers. Uh, we also have our IP transit, which we call Sticks, uh, Singapore Telecom Internet Exchange. Um, and we have our IP transit across the world as well. Okay, let's expand on SD Connect a little bit. How does that connect me to the cloud or, or allow peering? In? And is that an underlay specific product? Yeah, it's an underlay. Um, it's all around the world. We've got it in multiple data centers all, all across the, the globe. Uh, customer buys, for example, a 10 gig port. Um, they have a portal. They go into the portal. They set up uh, VLANs, and then they can point those VLANs at uh, AWS, Google, Azure, Alibaba, Oracle, um, or they can even point them back to other um, SD Connect ports around the world as well. So they could they can pull up a, a layer two. Effectively, you're basically p- pulling up a layer two. E-line ad hoc and tearing it down whenever you want. Okay. So you're when you go through that traffic flow stage of the design, you can pick out some places where, okay, it would make sense to put an SD connect there because that's where you want to on-ramp to one of these clouds or create uh, some sort of mesh. Absolutely. So yeah, we will typically um, in a, a site to regional hub uh, type SD-WAN deployment, We'll have local internet breakout, but we'll also have SD connects at the hub sites so that we um, certain traffic, depending on the customer, we can route via a tunnel, hits the SD connect port, then hits the cert, the target within the cloud that they want. Mark, is there any standard routing protocols that are even happening anymore? Because it feels like everything we're doing, we get, we can custom design any sort of forwarding paradigm that we need. So, I mean... Is BGP even working anymore? Does, does it does it matter in this design? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's it's still obviously the uh, and it still always will be um, the the brains behind. I mean, that's the magic of it. The brains behind the the global internet. Um, we do actually have some deterministic uh, internet relationships with other partners, so we can determine a better or a, we can at least guarantee latency and routing over certain internet routes. We've even got some of our pops around the world where we have internet gateways, SD-WAN gateways, so we can point to those pops over a local internet through a partner, but then guarantee the traffic past the pop to the other pop and hand off in a similar fashion at the other end. Hmm. And Mark, we were talking a good bit about the SD Connect product there and how some of that traffic has moved around in that product. You also mentioned an internet exchange uh, product, IP Transit. 
Can you describe that? I ask that in the context of when I think of internet exchange, it's, you know, it's a group of people who need to come together to exchange traffic over that internet exchange point. Is it like that or something else? So our Sticks product, which is Singapore Telecom Internet Exchange, it's it's our IP transit product. It's in all of our data centers in Singapore, Hong Kong, Tokyo, uh, Taiwan. We've got it in the US, in Europe. A lot of customers would use our IP transit uh, content, big content providers need it and use it. Um, we can also use it in a, a slightly non-traditional way for IP transit, uh, where we're using it because it's got the deterministic routes. So for example, you had a you have a customer in the US, they could point to our sticks pop in say LA or San Jose. And then they've got a guaranteed SLA and guaranteed deterministic route back to, say, Singapore or Hong Kong. We're talking about all these different products and services that all filter into the underlay. Once I have the underlay in, uh, we talked before about how you can use SD-WAN and an orchestrator to control your network, the overlay through policy and all that. What, do, what tools do I have available to help manage the underlay? Yeah, so for... Pure underlay, uh, we have a, a portal that we make available to all of our customers. Um, we call it Liquid Infrastructure Portal. Customer goes onto the portal, they can see all of their physical underlay. So they can see if the, all of their MPLS, all of their internet, all of their E-lines, whatever they've got with us, they'll see grouped together. And it's fully graphical, so they can click on a circuit, they can see it'll come up on a map where it is. They can see real-time stats on it, availability. They can um, do a, an ad move change. They can you know, bump up the bandwidth, put a request in to disconnect it or add a new service, any kind of ticket, um, trouble ticket, they can run through that portal. So we have the, the portal as a, a, a 10,000-foot overview globally of all their underlay, which kind of complements what we do with the SD-WAN with the overlay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And no one's filling out a word document and submitting it through a fax machine to provision a new circuit or up the bandwidth. Uh, thankfully not these days. No, it's all, <laughs> it's all done through our portals. Oh, oh, well, I miss the fax machine telling <laughs> me that I've, I've loaded the paper the wrong way or, or <laughs> the bod is wrong or something. Can I also manage uh, so down to the physical device layer? Do I have access to, uh, you know, the UCPE that we talked about in a, in a previous tech bite? So the UCPE, um, the customer would have access to what the instance that they're running. So they can go into that instance. Well, effectively, then let's just say they're using Silver Peak. They're not going to actually go to that instance on that on that UCPE. They're going to be looking at it via the orchestrator. So they're going to go to the orchestrator. The orchestrator knows, is telling them that what's happening at that particular site. Um, the, the UCPE, the physical UCPE, that will be our responsibility to, you know, make sure that's healthy and, and running correctly. Okay. What other support does does Singtel provide as as part of the underlay service? Are you running a knock for me or, uh, you know, uh, letting me know when issues are cropping up? Yeah, so we have uh, proactive management through our knock. So uh, all of the underlay circuits, if there's any alarms that come up, any failures, uh, customer will get, uh, notified. Same with the the account management team. Um, 
we'll then work with uh, the customer to fix the issue or fix a way around it until um, until it until it gets resolved. Mark, if if this has piqued people's interest and they want to hear more about the solution, or just talk to you because you're a pretty interesting fella, where could they reach out to you? Sure. So yeah, just uh, contact me on LinkedIn uh, under my name, or just contact us through Singtel.com. All right. Awesome. We'll include links in the show notes, of course. Thank you for joining us, Mark. And hey, humans out there, thank you for listening to this Tech Bite. This was the conclusion of our six-part series with Singtel on building cloud-ready networks. If you own a legacy MPLS-based WAN and want to bring it into the modern era, Singtel is a global telecommunications provider with the technical competence to help you with your project. If you give them a call, be sure to tell them you heard about them on Day2Cloud, part of the Packet Pushers Network. Hope you enjoyed that tech bite from Singtel. And hey, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. You can hit either Ethan or I up on Twitter at Day2CloudShow. We both monitor that. Or you can fill out the form on my fancy website, nedinthecloud.com. Do you have a way cool cloud product you want to share with our audience of IT professionals? Well, you could become a Day2Cloud sponsor. You'll reach several thousand listeners all of whom have problems to solve. Maybe your product fixes their problem. They'll never know unless you tell them about your amazing solution. You can find out more at packetpushers.net slash sponsorship. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.